0: Today we're arriving at chapter 10 in our study through the book of Daniel, a rather perplexing at times book, but also very intriguing, and I'm going to be putting putting forward some things today that I think are going to be pretty exciting, and I've entitled this particular message, Sending in the First String. And to help set the stage, let me talk to you about what used to happen On Tuesday nights back in Phoenix, Arizona, when I was on staff as a minister of music in a small church in the South Phoenix area, that was back in the day when some people would actually almost expect somebody from a church they had visited to knock on their door later in the week, usually Tuesday night. That was sort of the sacrosanct night of the week for visitation night. Can I get an amen for those who used to go to visitation night? Amen. So what they would do is, if we had visitors on a Sunday, they would fill out a visitor's card and they would put their information on it. And they would even check sometimes, yes, I would like a visit from one of the ministers or somebody from your church so I can ask more questions and get some more information about the church. Then we would meet after supper at the church, divvy up the cards, send our teams out, usually teams of two, and we would go door knocking with these cards because they were expecting us and uh, we would get to be invited in, and we would sit down with them and just chat and get to know them a little bit better. Well, we would meet back at the church to debrief our experiences and share our stories. And there were always some good stories, stories sometimes about dogs, maybe some very friendly lap dogs who got to settle in on your lap while you were visiting, maybe some other dogs not so friendly. And then, maybe about kids. Sometimes kids will say things out loud to ministers in front of their parents that the parents would kind of wish they hadn't said. <laughs> there are all kinds of stories about that. And one pastor shared, he was from another church. This was when we got together with a pastor's get together one time. And he lived in a city closer to a seminary where students would be studying to get some Bible training and uh, other things. And they would send the seminary students out as sort of a practice run, and they would be the first wave. They would be their team that they would send on the first round of visits to a new place. And then if there seemed to be a good initial first reaction, then they would go, and usually it was the pastor and his associate who would show up for that second visit so they could get into the home and get to know the people better and tell them a little bit more about the governance of the church and all the programs and invite them in. So this happened one time that the seminary team went out, made the first visit, and on the card they wrote that the husband in this family, the head of the household in that place, happens to be an athletic director at a nearby college. So that was kind of a fun thing, a little fun fact. So the pastor and his associates showed up on that next Tuesday night, and they knock on the door, and this huge, athletic, muscular-looking guy answers the door, He looks at the pastor, he looks at the associate, and he calls back and shouts over his shoulder to his wife, who apparently is in the next room, and he says, hey, honey, they sent in the first string. (laughs) Sometimes it's good to know that people are willing to send in the first string, and what we're going to see today is that in Daniel's experience, God actually sent in the first string too. See what I did there? So we're kind of excited today to be able to share some things from Daniel chapter 10, because he's going to receive yet another visit. He's already had a couple of them. And we've seen how in chapter 9 his visit was pretty special, because it was the angel Gabriel. I mean, for you to get a visit from angel Gabriel was a pretty big deal. But we're going to see that there's something, I think, that goes even one better than that, because God's actually going to send in the first string on this particular visit today. It's a fascinating and encouraging incident in Daniel's amazing story about how God paid attention to Daniel's plight and to the plight of Daniel's home country, Israel. And Daniel has been praying and fasting. In fact, he prayed and fasted for three weeks leading up to this particular visit. And we're going to see how, I believe anyway, that there's strong evidence that God sent in the first string by sending, you ready for this? His own son, the second person of the Trinity, a pre-incarnate Jesus for this visit. All right. But first, let me reintroduce to you the super sleuthing tools that we said we have been using to try to come up with the Uh, conclusions that we arrive at, because we want to be good biblical scholars and good interpreters. We know that we have the text, clearly we have to get to the text. What does the text say? And then what does it say in comparison with other texts around it? That's the context. Then we also have the New Text, which for us is the New Testament. Then we have the language, because sometimes one word can make a difference. And we can have style, as we looked at by having chiasm and parallelisms, other things that happen in Hebrew especially, that help us find out a real meaning for for a particular text. Well, the context for this particular vision, we need to start right away. Let's start at the very beginning with verse 1 of chapter 10, and we can see that in the third year of Cyrus, now Mark Elwell in just a a little while ago in our growth encounter pronounced it Cyrus, which is probably correct, but I have a friend, John Babry, who's the pastor over at Fellowship Baptist, where we've had a few of our in-person worships, and he calls himself the Swedo persian because he's half Swedish and half Persian, and he named his son Cyrus, and he calls him Cyrus, so I'm probably going to have to get a hold of John and let him know that he's mispronouncing his son's name. <laughs> but uh, Cyrus, Cyrus, whichever you prefer. Some say escape, others say escape. You get the point. Anyway, hold it right there. We could already get misled if we read this verse at face value, because we need to consider some other passages around it so that we don't get off on the wrong foot and assign the wrong year to when this happened, because we might think that this translates into 556. I'm sure most of you are thinking, oh, I bet that's 556 BC. You were thinking that, weren't you? since Cyrus began his reign in Persia in 559 BC. That would be in his third year, right? However, think about where Daniel has been taken. He's in Babylon. And then we understand where some of the cuneiform tablets that have been unearthed through archaeology have taken us, and we think it doesn't quite match with what we're seeing in history, so what could be going on here? Well, we're going to super sleuth it, and what we find is It's the third year in Cyrus's reign after he conquered Babylon. Because that would be Daniel's perspective and it would make sense that as the conqueror of the country where he's located, and then it all fits with the rest of history. Bum, bum, bum. Aren't we glad for super sleuthing tools? Well, the ruler who conquered Babylon in 539 BC had two names. Darius the Mede and Cyrus or Cyrus. And that's important. Why is it important? Because we could start to convolute things and make it more complicated than it needs to be if we think that there were two different rulers. And as we know, there's a footnote in the NIV version, the New International Version, which actually says the king had two names, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius the Mede, and then this footnote, that is the reign of Cyrus the Persian meaning that they believe it's the same guy, and being the same guy actually fits a lot of the other context of various verses around there. More good detail from super sleuthing. This is the same king, by the way, if you've been coming through this study with us together, who had promoted Daniel to being second in command in Babylon in chapter 6, verse 3. And he's the king who was manipulated by those selfish and uh, jealous leaders, the satraps or governors, who didn't like the fact that this young upstart who came from another country was gonna be put in charge over them because he was gonna become the boss. So they didn't like Daniel and they tried to find a way to get rid of him, which is why they convinced the king to develop that law, to pass into law something that would cause Daniel to have to break it because of his faith in Yahweh. And Daniel did break it because he kept praying three times a day, so you remember that story. Let's look at first, second, and third year of this king. Cyrus's decree to rebuild the Jerusalem temple was a big deal. This is something that God used in a foreign leader, in fact, which is why I think Mark alluded to that toward the very end of the growth encounter earlier on that he could even be considered God's anointed. Well, he was anointed for a specific task here And it was a big deal. People really celebrate what Cyrus did for Jerusalem and the Jewish people. His decree to rebuild the Jerusalem temple was huge, and we read about that in Ezra chapter 1. That was in 538 BC, because all these timelines line up. Second year, sacrifices resumed in Jerusalem. They started rebuilding it, but it took them a while to get there. The Babylonian people sent some of these Jews back in there to return to Jerusalem, but that wouldn't have been until the second year after Cyrus's reign, when after he conquered Babylon, his reign starting in Babylon, when they got back to their homeland and they were excited enough to get back into their regular worship and to do their atoning sacrifices there. So under the leadership of Zerubbabel, I've been trying to convince some of my relatives to name their babies Zerubbabel because he was a good guy. Nobody's done it yet. (laughs) The first thing they built was the altar of God, so they celebrated again in the same physical space where they had once worshiped. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Isn't it going to be great when we get back into the same physical space so we can worship together? We're gonna get there, and I think it's just around the corner. We're really on the home stretch here, folks. I really do believe that. So this return to the worship and sacrifices at the temple took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. This helps us place this very specifically in the calendar. That was one of the three feasts that people would go to Jerusalem to celebrate right there in the city. And that puts this return to the sacrifices in the month of October, 537 BC. How's that for specific? (laughs) The building of the foundation of the temple had not started yet because they were so eager to get back to doing the worship first. Now that brings us to the third year. Daniel was mourning for Jerusalem. This is in 536 BC. Why? Why was he mourning? If they had sent people back, and if they had started to rebuild the temple, and if they had started to resume their ritual sacrifices, wouldn't he be celebrating right now? Well, no, not really. He had a lot to mourn about. There were several reasons why Daniel would be mourning, and why he ate no choice food, it says in verse 3 of chapter 10. He didn't eat any meat or wine, Uh, he didn't use any lotions, that was just something that they would do if they were mourning, because in that hot climate they would use oils or lotions to try to protect their sons, usually SPF 50 right around in there, they were trying to keep their skin from getting become leather and they would stop doing that. Why? Because it was like sackcloth and ashes time. They didn't care if they felt bad. They wanted to feel bad. They were embracing their grief, and he embraced the grief because he couldn't be there, for one thing. He wanted to be. He's about 90 years old by this time, and he probably couldn't make the trip. But we also know that there were plenty of others who had decided to stay in Babylon, not because they weren't sent back in the first wave, but because they had grown accustomed to the Babylonian lifestyle, and they didn't really care to go back. And that made Daniel, I'm sure, really sad. And we know that the work on the temple had been moving very slowly, and that had given him cause to become grief-stricken as well. The foundations hadn't even been started yet, and he's thinking, when are we going to get moving on this thing? And then, of course, there's the vision which he receives that, again, like so many of these other visions are really troubling to him, And so he's mourning and praying, and he's thinking, I need some direction here. And Lord, I just really need to go before you. And so he was fasting and praying for 21 days, three weeks. And this is going to bring us to the man who visits him. And we're going to look at this very closely today, because I think this is the first string that we're talking about. Who is, I'm looking at the man in the vision. Okay. Verse 5. I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen. That's important. With a belt of fine gold. That's also important. From Ufaz. That's a region where they had fine gold products around his waist. Sometimes they would call it a sash. Sometimes it was a belt. We would call it a belt in English. Back then, they would probably call it a sash. And then, verse six his body of this visiting man was like topaz, his face like lightning. Another important feature his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Wow, this must have been some kind of a visitor. (laughs) Now let me read from Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, and let's compare the two and see if you notice some similarities here, okay? verse 13, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash felt around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters in his right hand he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword ah reminds me of another phrase that has to do with the word of the lord his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance ah so did you notice some parallels there let's check them off robe check belt check eyes like fire Check. Face like lightning? Check. Feet like burnished or glowing bronze? Check. The description of the man in Daniel 10 and the man in Revelation 1 sure sounds to me like the same person, doesn't it? And we have another clue as to who this person might be. There's one phrase in the Revelation account that does not appear in the Daniel 10 account. Now, Revelation happened later because John was on the Isle of Patmos. This is in the first century AD. Remember that? So what's that phrase? It's the Son of Man. Hmm. Revelation 1.13 says, can be like a Son of Man, which means he was some sort of a supernatural being, but in the form of a man. Here's another comparison. <laughs> aren't you enjoying being a super sleuth? It gets pretty exciting to me. Mm -hmm. Not only are there similarities between Daniel and John, that's the book of Daniel, and the book of Revelation, there are also some similarities in Saul's experience in the New Testament when he was on the road to Damascus. As you'll recall, if you've read through the book of Acts and that experience from his conversion, the apostle who was then going by the name of Saul, same person, Saul, Paul, saw a bright light, and it says it was a light brighter than the sun, that sounds a little familiar, on the road to Damascus. And the reaction of the men who were with Paul is kind of interesting here, especially as it relates to these other passages that we've looked at, because these guys all fell to the ground. There's a song that we have sung in our worship time together. We fall down and cast our crowns. You know the falling down and casting our crowns kind of stuff? That's where some of this might come from, don't you think? Now in Daniel's case in the Old Testament, as was the case of Saul in the New Testament, he saw the vision, but the people around the person did not see it, and yet they were struck with fear as well. Even though they didn't see the same thing that caused Daniel or Saul to become completely wigged out, they fell to the ground too. That's how terrifying this experience was. In fact, the one, I love the, in the verse in chapter 10, verse 7 of Daniel, because it says they got so scared, in fact, that they hightailed it out of there and went running for a place to hide. I think I would have too. I'm not laughing at them. I'm just saying, yeah, that shows what the uh, people would have been like back then. So here's some other things about the reassurance that God gives us. Even though we know that the glory of God and his personal intervention in people create such fear. In Daniel, the power of God's glory is certainly overwhelming. But look what God does. In John's case, the Revelation account, when John saw the Son of Man, John fell at his, meaning the sons of man's feet, as though dead. He was like comatose. (laughs) Jesus placed his right hand on John and said, do not be afraid. So that's some context for Daniel's experience. I keep going back and forth between Revelation and Daniel because it's just important for us to see this connection there. Now, there's some similarities here. Let's look again, this time at chapter 10 of Daniel, though, starting at verse 8. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left, says Daniel. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened, and remember what the voice was described like. This would have been no ordinary voice coming out of this being who's visiting with him. I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. And a hand touched me. This is where the similarity to the Revelation account comes in. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. And then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Remember that I said last time, that sometimes the prayers of God's people will set all the power of heaven in motion, even though it may be some time before we can actually see the fruition of those prayers and understand how the power of heaven was at work in that situation. Well, Daniel was so overcome by the presence and the glory of God that he fell to the ground, same with John. Oh, and by the way, there's a third experience with the person of Ezekiel, when he had a vision and saw the glory of the Lord as well," thunk right down into the ground. Face plant. When people who are seeking God's will encounter God, they are sometimes overcome, I should say, they're always overcome with the power of God's glory. It's unmistakable. Even though God's people may have prayed to him many, many times, when God decides to send somebody special to visit them, and they know that it's a representation of God incarnate, either through a representation uh, of a visiting angel like Gabriel, as we can see in the New Testament too, Mary, Joseph, or in this case, what I think is a strong case for the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the incarnate Jesus, or pre-incarnate, I should say. Then we understand that God's glory is so overwhelming, they just don't know what else to do. And so they just literally fall over almost as though they are dead. That's why we see Jesus' words like these appear so many times in Scripture. Fear not. It's me. It's okay. Don't be afraid. Walking on water in a lake. Fear not. It's okay. I'm not a ghost. It's just me. Oh, it's just you. Well, no big deal. No reason to be fearful then from the guy who's walking on the water. Be strong and courageous, for peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. But this is the kind of peace that passes all human understanding. You see all these things that come out of God, especially through his son, to people? He has to tell them not to be afraid. Why? Because we're afraid. And God's power and glory should be an awesome thing to us. We ought not to take it lightly. So Daniel received the strengthening hand of the Lord. And it's something that he could reach right down and touch him on the shoulder and say, it's okay, it's me, get up. And the assurance of his voice as well, just like Mary in the garden Mary it's me (laughs) understand the words that i'm about to speak to you so stand up, he says in verse 11, by the way, for I have now been sent to you, and when he said this to me, I stood up shaking so he's still trembling. So here it is again God's reassurance to Daniel. Again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. I just think it's powerful for us to think of God who's that powerful, being able to get into our physical space and literally touch somebody. That's huge. And for Jesus in the New Testament to touch the people who are untouchables, the lepers and the outcasts and the marginalized and the sinners, And the harlots and all those people that the Pharisees and the religious leaders would have shunned. And Jesus is touching these folks. And he says, It's okay. I'm here for you. That's a big deal. And then he said to me, Don't be afraid, you who are highly valued. Wow, after 21 days of praying and fasting and feeling grief stricken, what a word. I've seen your prayers, Daniel, and you're highly valued. Wow. Have you been going through something difficult? And would this be an encouragement to know that God actually hears you when you're praying and calling out to him? And couldn't you just imagine him showing up and saying, I hear you and you're highly valued? Hmm. Well, because of the description of the person in this vision, like a son of man or in the form of a human being and because of the phrases of comfort and encouragement used by Jesus it appears in context that the person who visited Daniel could very well have been the second person of the Trinity God the Son Jesus the Christ pre-incarnate but he's God (laughs) he can choose to do that if he chooses to if he wants to now if I get up to heaven And if I say, was that actually you, Jesus? And if he says, no, that that was Gabriel, I'm not going to argue with him. But I think there's good contextual evidence to think that maybe this is the case. And the reason I'm sharing this is not so we can win a trivia contest. It's not so we can be right and pummel somebody else with our Bible knowledge. It's so that we can be encouraged because we know that if God chooses to send in the first string, he can send in the first string. And I think it's very encouraging to Daniel and it would certainly be encouraging to us to know that when we have a need that's greater than anybody else can meet, God's there to meet that need. Some Bible scholars really have a hard time with this notion. They just don't want to admit that this could be Jesus pre-incarnate and they think it has to be an angel. Why do they think that? Well, they have a hard time because of some of the other Uh, verses here, and particularly verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13 says this, Don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you began to pray for understanding to humble yourself before God. Your request has been heard in heaven. I've come in answer to your prayer, but for 21 days the spirit prince of the king, wait a minute, back up, the what? But for 21 days the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. We're going, what? Now this is, if it's an angelic being, there's a spirit prince who's in the heavenly realms blocking his way. If it's Jesus, would somebody actually be able to block Jesus' way? Well, keep reading. Blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, this is a warrior angel, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now scholars would say, No, this can't be Jesus. Jesus is so much more powerful than that. And yet, if Michael, the archangel, were to come and Jesus says, okay, I'm going to leave him in charge there so I can go and have a little chat with Daniel here because he's been praying to me and I need to get over here and visit with him, he could certainly have done that. Very interesting passage. Now, the Son of Man is telling Daniel that his prayer was heard right away. He wasn't delaying so that He could somehow uh, prove something to Daniel. He had some business to take care of. There were some things going on in the heavenly realms that Daniel was not privy to at the moment when he first started praying. I think that may be an encouragement to us too. Sometimes I've looked back in my own life and I've seen God's guiding hand, and I didn't see it nearly as clearly until after I looked back over historic events, and I thought if this hadn't happened, leading to this event, and if this hadn't happened, I wouldn't be able to do this today which God had clearly preordained for me to be a part of. God was orchestrating events through the whole time, even though I was very distraught and sometimes really impatient. I think we all still get there, don't we? Well, the one who had the appearance of a man, that one that to me sounds like Jesus, when you see the descriptions that I've just read to you, was detained in battle for three weeks. Isn't that something? The prince, or spirit prince, who was over the empire of Persia, resisted him. Now, let's look at another comparison passage uh, that leads me to believe that there's a strong case to be made. The commander of the Lord's army. This is a passage, again, in the Old Testament, but it's about a story that uses some different phraseologies here, and they're so similar that I think it's really good for us to see another comparison here. This is the incident when Joshua was going to lead his army against Jericho. Joshua, the battle of Jericho. And the night before that battle was to begin, as was very often the case with uh, generals leading an army, they would go out and walk. If you've seen the gladiator movie, you see this guy out walking and thinking and probably praying before the battle is going to begin the next day. And Joshua does this. And he confronts the man who shows up and says, are you friend or foe? verse 13 of Joshua five. And this is no ordinary soldier because the guy answers and says, neither one, I am the commander of the Lord's army. Oh, okay, and what is Joshua's response? Are you ready for this? He fell to the ground in reverence. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? Does that phrase, fell to the ground, sound familiar? It should. Daniel, yes. Ezekiel, yes. John in the book of Revelation, yes. And then there's another aspect to Joshua's encounter. The commander gave him another instruction. He said, and this ought to sound familiar as well, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. Where have we heard that before? Moses. Hello. Standing in front of the burning bush, it's holy ground. Who says that but God? Well, I think it was God. I think it was Jesus pre-incarnate. Now, some people just can't grasp that the commander of God's army is the same as God the Son, Jesus. They say it just has to be an angel. It's got to be sent by God under God's authority as though he's speaking for God, but it's not actually God the second person. Well, that's okay. If that's your conclusion, that's all right. It's not going to separate us from now till eternity. That's all right. We can get along. We'll be nice to one another, but I just think there's a whole ton of evidence here that's pointing to that fact that it really could be him, because it just does make sense that Jesus, who's going to be leading that great battle against Satan one day, is going to be the one who's really just taking charge. Now, let me show you one more passage. This is from the New Testament, which helps lead me to this conclusion again. This is from Ephesians, and this is Paul writing this, the guy who was converted on the road to Damascus experience. Paul says that we're not fighting the same kind of battles that earthly armies fight. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against evil spirits in heavenly places so says ephesians 6 12 in the new living translation now the word as prince or spirit prince that we see in daniel refers to one of these unseen authorities one of these rulers in the spiritual realm and so jesus is the one who's going to lead in a battle against the commander of the dark army the one that opposes god namely satan Satan is referred to in the New Testament as, quote, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That would be the spirit of the flesh, the spirit of earth, the people who oppose God, in other words. Hmm. So it makes sense to me, anyway, that the commander of Satan's army would be Satan, and that the commander of God's army would be God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. That's what this troubling vision is about, a great conflict, the word which also means war or warfare. It's about the conflict in the spiritual realm, this unseen realm, and the word for conflict its again, where we get into the language, which is important. It's one of our super sleuthing tools. The language here in Daniel 10.1, the word for conflict is the same one that means armies or warfare used by the second person of the Trinity when he described himself as the captain of the army of the Lord in Joshua. So the spiritual warfare is being acted out all around us, but we might not be aware of it, and yet sometimes we get to see when it kind of becomes bubbled up out in through the actors in humankind, and I'll give you an example of that. Would you like an example of that? Okay, thanks for asking. In looking at spiritual warfare and how that can manifest itself here on earth through human actors, we see that not only through something that was told about in Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, but we can also see that it's referring to something that happened in the book of Matthew, and it relates to Mary and Jesus. So we have King Herod, who stands as this awful example, a despicable person. And In Revelation chapter 12, we read about spiritual warfare. It's a strange passage. It's one that says, the dragon, we think is referring to Satan, stood in front of the woman I believe that's Mary, who was about to give birth, who did she give birth to? Jesus, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. In other words, Satan wants to get rid of this kid. So that's what's happening in the unseen heavenly warfare, but down on earth, there's something being carried out by a human actor. In the first century AD, King Herod ordered that all the infants under two be killed in Bethlehem." That's in Matthew 2.16. Why would somebody do something that horrible? It was an attempt to kill the one who would be born the king of the Jews, the one who's prophesied. Herod was the human actor carrying out the orders of principalities and powers in a spiritual battle against the promised Messiah. And of course we know who won that battle because it's given to us in Matthew chapter 2. And it says in 2.13, after the wise men were gone, remember the wise men in the Christmas story, they came and worship, an angel of the Lord appeared, now this was an angel this time, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, get up, flee to Egypt with the child, Jesus, and his mother. And the angel said, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Aha. So God intervened, there's warfare going on, human actors are involved, but God continues to work out his eternal purposes through everything. All right, meanwhile, back at Daniel's chat with this, what I believe, pre-incarnate Jesus, the second person of the Trinity gave Daniel the strength to stand, and then he told Daniel, verse 20, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince, the archangel. Michael is that archangel who is mentioned both in Daniel and in Revelation. Now here's something really encouraging. Lean in close. It's going to get good. This is encouraging to all of us. Jesus who ascended to heaven after he rose from the dead and appeared to many witnesses is now at the right hand of God in his position of authority and he stands for his people in their important battles, even today. He continues to interrupt the mischief being brought upon God's people through the Prince of Darkness. We know that the prince of darkness is at work. We know he's trying to stir people up into contentious attitudes and divisiveness and things that would distract us from our real purpose, which is to reflect God's glory to other people. And he does a pretty good job of it, but God is not gonna let that slip by without taking care of him once and for all. It's coming. The decisive battle was won. On the cross. This is the one that turned the tide and the one that we know finished all the work that Jesus needed to finish while he was on earth. Telestai, it is finished. That set the stage for God's ultimate final victory, which is going to happen once the final name has been written in God's book of life. And that last name is written and it's God's time. Boom! final battle will be won, and it can be won with a single utterance of the word from Jesus' mouth, a double-edged sword. God's power is still at work, even today, folks, and he still answers prayers. All this waiting that we've been doing, even as a church, I know, I know you've been just chomping at the bits, as I have, to get back together, but we're going to look back someday, and we're going to see all that God was orchestrating, And I do believe that we're going to see that he was busy at work orchestrating events that were so necessary, things that we might not be able to see, maybe even for a long time. But when we do, when he reveals to us what he was doing, we're going to go, well, of course he was doing that. (laughs) That makes so much sense now, now that we're on the other side of this crazy event. But his work is still at work. God's power is still at work. He is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come, as Paul says in Ephesians. So what happens, though, somebody might ask, when God doesn't answer, when we've been praying like crazy and he decides, well, in this case, I'm not going to answer in the same way that you would like for me to answer. Does that mean that he's just ineffective? Does it mean he doesn't care? Does it mean that he's not powerful enough? That... Satan is sort of winning over the evil stuff, including over God or Jesus? Well, here's a true story that happened just after the new church was really beginning to grow and flourish, and I think it gives us a glimpse as to why God can choose not to answer in the way we want him to. He is answering, but sometimes his answer is no or not yet. But Stephen, this guy who became a martyr, was in a situation where, because he was just not going to keep his mouth shut about this risen Lord, people were really angry about Stephen and they they began to pelt him. They were going to throw these fist sized rocks at him and kill him by stoning him. Why couldn't the Lord have intervened and protected Stephen at that moment? He could have. He really could have. I mean, he could have swooped in there and whooped him good but he chose not to. He withheld his mighty hand. Why would he do that? Well, Acts 7, 55 and 56 says this, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. He gave Stephen a glimpse of glory. God who is standing on behalf of his people. I saw that at my mother's own passing when her spirit was moving from this earth into her life eternal in the presence of God. My sister and I were there at her bedside And at one moment, she reached up, and I thought perhaps she was trying to grasp my hand, but she sort of pushed gently pushed my hand away and was reaching up, and her face was radiant. She was seeing something I wasn't seeing, and she was eager to get there. Stephen was eager to get there as well. God gave Stephen a glimpse of the Lord standing for his people, as he continues to do today, God is still standing for you. And he still answers your prayers as well. Well, God not only answers prayers, but he also fulfills all of his prophecies as he does through Daniel. He predicted four kings. There's Cambyses, 530 to 522. Smerdis. I have to tell you about that one. This is funny. You can't make this stuff up. Uh, following Cyrus's death, was Cambyses. He had his younger brother Smerdis murdered to make sure that his throne was secure. So, this is not his younger brother Smerdis, who's king number two there. But Cambyses went off to war. And while he was away, there was a guy who looked just like his, he was a dead ringer for his brother. He was a doppelganger who took over the throne in Persia. That's why literally people back then called him Pseudo Smerdis. Isn't that hilarious? I think so. Well, Cambyses started traveling home to kill this impostor, but died before he made it home. So Pseudo Smerdis actually ruled as the actual king then, but only for seven months. You know, you've heard the phrase, "It's good to be king." It wasn't so good to be king in this particular season. Well, Pseudo Smerdis passed off, and uh, then the son-in-law of the late Cyrus, Darius Hystaspes became became the king, and he ruled from 522 to 486 BC. But I've saved the best for last, King number four, because as I've shown you before in looking at our super sleuthing tools, all these interrelated things, as we've seen through uh, the study of King David and our growth encounter with Stephen Pipe, and then Mark and the study of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, all these things start to interrelate to one another. And it's a beautiful picture when we see the tapestry that unveils the picture of Jesus Christ, who's at the center of it all. So wait for it here. Drum roll, please. Who's the fourth one? Xerxes also happens to be, oh yes, the husband of Esther, another Old Testament book. You remember Esther and that story? Hopefully, if you haven't read the book, it's a short book. You could do it this afternoon. But Xerxes was so wealthy that in the predicted prophecies in Daniel, he became powerful because of his wealth, and he hosted back then, the, the scriptures tell us this, and then we also have it confirmed in history. He became so wealthy that he hosted the equivalent of a world's fair that lasted six months, and so he definitely became strong through his riches. And we know from the book of Esther, this is some really cool and important stuff, that King Xerxes deposed Queen, Queen Vashti, the one who preceded Esther, because she wouldn't appear before the court when he demanded that she do so and we have to read between the lines just a little bit but we think that wine was involved we think that the way he wanted her to appear as she was dancing was probably not something she was willing to do and that's why she decided nah ain't gonna do it (laughs) she says no to the king and you don't say no to the king but she did so she was deposed so he had to look for another queen all the beautiful maidens in the land. Esther is the one, and of course, she's one of God's chosen people to do something, and she stood for such a time as this, and God used her to go before the king, even unannounced, and be bold and brave to save the Jewish people. Beautiful story. So Xerxes took on the Greek empire and made some great strides for three years, as predicted in Daniel 11:2. And as he was just really getting going then, uh, it took a turn for the worse, He was defeated by the Greeks in the Battle of Salamis, not Salami, but Salamis, in 480 BC. He continued to reign, however, for another 15 years, filled with strife, and was assassinated by the chief of the palace guards. Always an inside job. Et tu Brutus? You know, Shakespeare? Julius Caesar? Someone who knew him and... Became one of his assassins. Okay, you, you got that. Okay, anyway, that was in 465 BC. So, guess who takes Xerxes' place? You ready? Another drum roll, please. Artaxerxes. Artie. Artie, Artie, he's our man. He's the one with the rebuilding plan. You remember him from last week? Artaxerxes. This is important. So, who was. Artaxerxes' mother, do we think? Don't have this one confirmed yet. I'm hoping for some archaeology that would do so. I think there's pretty good assumption made here that it could very well have been Queen Esther, who became queen after Vashti, and helped save God's people then, but if she were still the queen mother, as is very likely the case, then when Arty comes along, Artaxerxes, she could have influenced him so that he becomes the one to start the messianic clock in motion by his decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the city and the walls. Isn't it amazing to see all the different ways that God could have interwoven all these relationships to get exactly what needed to be done so that ultimately he could send in the first string in the person of Jesus Christ to pay for sin once and for all. God still answers. And aren't we glad? For those of us who find ourselves in situations that we think, I don't know that I can make it through this thing. I've found a season that, I mean, it's taken everything out of me. I'm digging deep for whatever I can get to help me moving forward just one day at a time. God still answers. Psalm 34, the Lord hears his people when they call to him for help. He does rescue them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. The righteous person faces many troubles, but the Lord comes to his rescue or hers every time. And he still does that. In Daniel's case, I believe, strong case being made here that God sent in the first string. John's case, Isle of Patmos, first string. Ezekiel, first string. I think there's just all kinds of good situations here when it looks to me like when God shows up, we recognize that it's so powerful that we literally have to fall on our faces before him in worship. In the case of a lost sinner in need of a savior, aren't we glad that God sent the first string? It was an eternal problem. It needed an eternal solution. We needed someone to sit on King David's throne, as was pointed out in Mark's study this morning. It wasn't going to be just another human being who was a descendant of David. It had to be somebody who could sit on that throne forever. Well, that means it needs to be an eternal person. That person is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. I'm really grateful that God sent the first string to save sinners like you and me, And you still have access to his grace, even today, if you'll call out to him. Let's pray. Father, there are so many of us who have recognized that we're really weak and in need much of the time. I've seen that more in my own life in this last 14 or 15 months than I've seen in all my previous (laughs) put-togethers. But I'm so grateful that you are the kind of God who really does show up when we need you, And you answer prayers in the way that will best suit us. And we pray that if there's anybody here today who needs to call out to you, if they're in that season, and they can say, God, I really need you. I know that you're close to the brokenhearted, and I'm brokenhearted right now. I need you desperately. I pray that you will show up in their lives as well, personally, and that they'll worship you in response to your showing up. And that they will cling to you as the hope of glory and the hope of their future because of what Jesus did for us on the cross atoning once and for all for all of sin. Putting death to shame rising again to conquer death once and for all time and to give that first fruits of our resurrection because we've got one too. If we're a Christ follower I pray that you'll do all that through the person of Jesus Christ that second person of the Trinity in whose name and in whose authority we pray.